Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden had a successful G20 and COP26 outing, even with some climatological contradictions. He is back in town, still trying to get his party aboard his $1.85 trillion social spending package. A bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure measure remains in the wings and awaiting House approval. Uh, That measure has been delayed pending approval of Biden's wider social package uh, that uh, originally started, uh, some would argue, at $6 trillion, went down to $3.5 trillion, and is now around $1.85 trillion. Meanwhile, unable to show progress, Democrats had a bad election day, most prominently in Virginia, where the party lost all three major state offices, as well as delegates. Democrats lost seats elsewhere across the country, uh, including the president of the New Jersey Senate, a veteran Democratic lawmaker who lost to a GOP uh, truck driver with no political experience. Republicans see a win model to paint Democrats as radical leftists to win back moderates and in a moderate Republicans and independents who voted for Democrats in 2018, uh, 2016, 2018, and 2020. Um, meanwhile, the defense budget uh, remains stalled as the administration releases its annual report to Congress on Chinese military developments, and DOD is going to get a climate chief uh, to help the department cope with the physical and operational implications of climate change. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, uh, who among his many affiliations counts the Center for Strategic uh, and International Studies as one of his homes. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA sponsored our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago in Washington, D.C., And also, please check out our new Downlink podcast with our very own contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a deep and thoughtful dive into all things space uh, each week, Uh, this week coming to you from the Aspen Security Forum, and uh, and tune in to the Cavus Ships podcast with our own contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, uh, who talk uh, about all things uh, naval this week, taking a deep dive into the administration's new China uh, report. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much for uh, joining us. Michael, uh, uh, good uh, good to have you on again. Uh, bring us up to speed legislatively, right? There is uh, a lot uh, going on. Uh, and I also want to get your take also on uh, how each of the parties responded uh, to the uh, election and, and the messages they, they took away with that, because I know that that's been a hot topic of conversation up there, obviously. First, start us off legislatively, where do we stand on everything? Because this is sort of a moving shell game each week. Well, you know, it's deja vu all over again. Uh, so we're at another week where the Democrats are trying to pass uh, their reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better plan, as well as the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, now, last week, you know, we talked about how the president had come to the Hill prior to his trip overseas to look for support for the bill. However, uh, he never asked for the Democrats to vote for either one of the bills. And that really left a lot of people puzzled and, and angry. Uh, and now we found out why. Uh, the head of the Progressive Caucus in the House, Pramila Jayapal, reached out to White House Chief of Staff uh, Klain and said, 
told him not to ask Biden not to ask for a vote on that bill. Uh, and he, they complied. So when Biden came, he did not ask Democrats for a vote. And when he took off and flew uh, to Europe, he did only made one phone call uh, to a member just to tell her how great she did on television. So it blindsided Pelosi and her leadership team because uh, they were expecting to have a vote that day. Now, Hoyer came out saying that there would be there would be a vote by December 3rd. However, the Democrats are trying to pass it again this week. Last night, they had hoped to have a vote. I had dinner with four members of Congress last night who were regularly checking their phones to see if there would be a vote. But the House ended up adjourning at about 10 o'clock last night, reconvened this morning at 8 a.m. I saw the notice that the leader sent out to the Democrats about votes today. It's all question marks about what time they are going to vote. Um, now, there's something to change and some progress has been made. I mean, they did add back the paid family medical leave into the bill, and they reached a deal on uh, repealing the, the SALT deductions and um, also um, resolving some concerns in immigration and uh, working with the moderates on some slightly altered drug pricing. Uh, however, uh, there are several centrists that said, hey, look, we're not going to vote for this bill until it's got a CBO score, and we've had 72 hours to review the bill. So there's a lot of roadblocks in front of that. And even if they are able to pass the, this um, reconciliation bill today, which I still am not sure they can, uh, it's definitely not going to pass the Senate in its present form. So Pelosi will be breaking another promise uh, to the moderates that she said initially they would not vote on a bill out of the House that could not pass the Senate. This bill cannot and will not pass the Senate. So now she's forcing people to take a vote uh, that may be unnecessary, and either they uh, this dies in the Senate or Senate passes a different version, and the House will have to vote on this twice. Um, and uh, I should point out, right, unfortunately, Dr. Gordon Adams is not able to join us as our resident Democrat and one-time conservative. Um, he, he was unable to join us. And what he would say, uh, having been uh, conversing with him all week, uh, is that this is something that's very, very complicated. It's a much uh, bigger tent party than Republicans are. Uh, and so everybody is trying to balance everybody's interest and get to a better place legislatively, uh, ultimately, that takes uh, into consideration progressives, takes uh, independence, uh, as, as well as the right of the party, right, as represented by uh, Joe, Joe Manchin and, and uh, Kristen Cinema. Uh, Although I, th I think folks have a better sense on where Manchin actually stands than where Cinema actually stands. But walk us through where we are on defense uh, deliberations, because I also want to get you, get a sense on on political takeaways. Where are we on the defense de deliberation? And is this a potential positive, bright, bright bipartisan spot, given where everybody, you know, given that everybody does acknowledge that China is a significant uh, uh, threat, uh, you know, the, the <coughs> hypersonic uh, test, uh, Chinese hypersonic tests over the summer certainly coalesce feelings that we're a little bit out of time and that Frank Kendall is absolutely right. And we've got to kind of move with a real sense of urgency here, uh, even though there was no surprise about that. It wasn't a Sputnik moment because the Chinese were very clear that they were work working on this capability. Um, give us a sense on where we are on the defense uh, deliberation, because Byron on Monday told us he's changing his sort of weighted outlook on, on where we end up uh, with the continuing resolution and an overall budget. Yeah, so there was some slight movement. Uh, there was a meeting of what's called the four corners. So the chair and ranking of both the House and Senate uh, Appropriations Committees uh, all met uh, on Tuesday to begin these discussions. However, the meeting only lasted 35 minutes and broke up with the Republicans threatening uh, a year-long CR. Uh, one of the four members, won't say who, called me afterwards apoplectic about how poorly that meeting had gone. 
Uh, and so there are several you know, problems here. I mean, one is, and the biggest one really is, there, even if the Democrats agree to raise defense spending by 5%, which it appears that they are willing to do, the non-defense domestic discretionary is being raised by 13% in their bills. And that does not include the passage of the American Rescue Plan earlier this year, which is 1.9 trillion, and now possibly more huge domestic spending in this reconciliation plan and the bipartisan infrastructure plan. So the Republicans say this is too much of an imbalance, right? So you're gonna have to either trim some of your non-defense domestic discretionary or and or raise the defense number up a little higher. Uh, so they're still very far apart. They haven't agreed to the framework of, of the negotiations yet. They seem to be talking past each other. I'm alarmed by how many Republicans are talking to me about a year-long CR. Now, the defense-oriented Republicans understand the implications, right, and how defense will be not only devastated, but also will receive far less money if we go with the Trump numbers uh, in, into next year. Uh, so Delora is still pushing for a but, deal but by I mean, December. That, but that. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a zero sum environment, right, I mean, as far as Republicans are concerned, whether it's voting rights or anything else, the, I mean, right, I mean, the, the answer has to be no. There, there is no yes at the end of it, right? I mean, so you've got to try to figure out how, how best, hence reconciliation uh, and, you know, debating about whether or not to eliminate the filibuster because the party is using its power and will use its power to do everything it can. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't, it's not really about defense. It's about hurting the president and but not, but not but not necessarily I, I don't i don't i don't really agree with that i think there are plenty of reasons for the republicans to be opposed to this reconciliation plan right um i am sure if the cbo scores that these pay fors are not going to add up especially you know adding a bunch of irs agents is magically going to come up with a bunch of extra money and these are going to be entitlements that are going to cost us money out into the out years and don't forget the bipartisan infrastructure bill begins with a b in bipartisan mitch mcconnell voted for that bill all right and it's the progressives that have laid this defeat at the president before the president because they're the ones that are blocking it for getting passed in the house and they could have passed this before the elections on Tuesday and given the president a win they could have passed it before uh, the president went to Europe and given him a win they chose not to do it right so uh, i think the republicans are coming to the table on things that are necessary to make the government run I, again i think mcconnell deserves credit again for helping extend the debt limit when he did and the and the democrats are refusing to acknowledge the warnings that he laid out after he um, extended it, because there's no talk about including the, the extending the debt limit in this reconciliation package. So uh, I think that, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around uh, on both sides here. But I think what you pointed out earlier about China, that's the rub here that they need to hear that China wins, you know, if we don't pass uh, a defense bill and uh, other appropriations bills. We do a CR for a year. We're going to fall even farther behind when it comes to hypersonics and all the other things that we need to do to play catch up. Now, that also brings us into where we are with the NDAA. Um, I think you've seen you know, a, a public war of words now on behalf of Chairman Adam Smith, who's very frustrated, and I think rightfully so, with the Senate's inability to bring this bill to the floor. I mean, there's not much else going on in the Senate floor right now, but Senator Schumer has refused to bring the NDAA to the floor. Now, every week we say it's going to be next week. Now, the hope is that they do pass it before Thanksgiving, which again, does not give them a lot of time, but they can conference it quickly and get it done before the end of the year. But- there's also some concern that Schumer may want to add other things onto NDAA, knowing it's going to pass, like his uh, Endless Frontiers bill, or if this reconciliation package doesn't pass, can they attach some of these other uh, items to the NDAA at the end of the year? That's a big unknown, and that could endanger uh, the final passage of the bill. So it's, it's going to be, a, we still have a long way to go to the end of the year and a lot to get done. 
Um, let me uh, bring it uh, to the conversation of takeaways from Tuesday's uh, elections, right? I mean, we heard from Abigail Spanbarger, I think, representative of uh, moderate Democrats saying, but, you know, Biden didn't have an FDR uh, style landslide and a mandate for change. He had a narrow victory with the center and should govern from the center as opposed to governing, you know, veering to the left, which is which is the concern and not being able to deliver any legislative victories hurt uh, Democrats. At least that's how it's seen. Now, I see a lot of people who say, look, these margins were a lot tighter and actually Democrats are doing could, could have done even worse. Right. That Virginia may have been an atypical case. The candidate made a, uh, a foul up in a, a statement about education. Democrats, you know, Republicans jumped on it. Uh, and 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 Youngkin is a I think people will find a much more conservative uh, Republican than the soccer dad that some people perceive him to be, right? And and was fully backed by Trump. It's just that he figured out how to do that delicate dance and get the dog whistles right. But ultimately, what are what are each of the parties taking away from this? Because again, it is a zero sum game, and Republicans want to win in twenty two and twenty four. Well, first, I think Abigail Spanberg is spot on. You know, I, I've been saying exactly what she's saying to my Democratic friends on the Hill, you know, as a sign of caution. I mean, you've got a 50-50 Senate, a, a three-seat majority in the House now, and when the special elections are done, a five-seat majority, and a very close presidential election that took days to call, that is not a mandate for this, you know, progressive change. And I think it's not just Virginia, too. I mean, as you mentioned earlier in the introduction, you got to look at what happened in New Jersey. I'm, I'm from New Jersey. And I was not at and all. And you surprised. ran for Congress in that great state once. Upon a time. I did, and I won the primary. Don't forget that. So I, I won. I got. I won. <laughs> I did win the election. I got halfway there. So, uh, but I'd seen this once before back in 1990. You know, when Jim Florio was elected in '89 and was a very unpopular governor right away because he was raising taxes. Bill Bradley was running for re-election to the U.S. Senate in 1990. Very popular uh, nationwide senator, and late into the night, that race was too close to call. An unknown Republican with very little money almost beat him. And that was Christine Todd Whitman that year, right? Because right? New Jersey voters have a lot of unaffiliated voters, and that's where these elections are won and lost, is, is in the middle. And that's why you know, I think the Republicans won in Virginia, because the middle and undecided broke for Youngkin, and what happened in New Jersey, not just with a very close gubernatorial race, but as you pointed out, the state Senate president lost re-election to a truck driver who spent $2,000. This is you know, an earthquake, as far as I'm concerned, you know, for the, for the Democrats. Now, even before this election, Democrats were telling me, I don't see how we don't how we win in 22. We're going to get wiped out. I mean, we talked last week about a, a certain congressman that reached out to me just talking about how our legislative failures over the next two months, you know, will be, a, you know, earth shattering. So I, I think that uh, this is going to be, uh, you know, look, Five seats is not a lot, especially with redistricting. It's a, but our, our and it, the elections are still a year away. But I think the progressives are coming out of this election with all the wrong uh, messages, just like they did out of the last election, thinking that this was a mandate for radical progressive change. They're thinking we didn't do enough of this progressive stuff. So by trying to pass this bill again out of the House is not going to win over those middle those middle of the road voters didn't vote for Republicans because they want free college. And more, you know, Medicare expansion and higher taxes. Also, that's not why they voted for the Republicans. They voted for us because they're concerned about the Democrats' ability to govern the things that they're saying they're going to do, and the things that are happening, like the rising inflation um, and the rising crime and our failures on the foreign policy front. I mean, things are not going very well for the Democrats right now. And I think by passing this bill, it's really a death sentence for folks like Abigail Spanberger uh, and these moderate Democrats who won districts that were Republican held in 18 and now have to go back to the same voters again 
uh, for re-election and during a Republican presidency. So I, I and I was not very confident about the Senate prior to this. Now I'm starting to think that Republicans could take the Senate back, too. Um, I, and um, I, I want to get uh, Dove's uh, and then Patrick's sense uh, on, on this as well, because uh, aside from being uh, a great uh, Asia uh, thinker and analyst, obviously you've been part of the Washington political scene for three decades, Patrick, as, as well as with, with some time on the Hill and elsewhere. Um, I, I mean, one, one point I would make is from a progressive standpoint, there is no middle. And so we have to cater to our base um, and, you know, get them out and motivate them and that there is no middle and that th- these are all mirages uh, that uh, ultimately, um, if we triple down, is how we're going to get our uh, achievements. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one of the people who just thinks that's nuts because, I mean, it's, it's just not in the cards, right? Both of the parties are fairly evenly split. And Republicans do a much better job of alarming moderates and getting them to sort of, you know, whether it's about, you know, well, they want to get you out of voting for schools. And unfortunately, Democrats do not show up for these midterm elections the way they should. A radical part, a a motivated part of the base shows up. But a lot of Democrats tend not to come out. uh, And whereas Republicans do a better job turning out their base, right? Their base will vote for Donald Trump or Glenn Youngkin or anybody else. Uh, who's got an R next to their name, which is whereas, whereas Democrats really have to feel it for their candidate. And, they, and, and many of them, as we saw in 2016, didn't quite feel it for, um, uh, for Hillary Clinton, just like they didn't feel it for uh, Terry McAuliffe, uh, ultimately. Again, I mean, it, it, was, it was not a landslide crushing of Terry uh, McAuliffe. Um, Dove, sort of give us give us your sense on what you think the takeaways and the lessons here are and what they mean for national security, uh, ultimately. Yeah, well, um, I would urge people, even if they never read the New York Times, to read David Brooks in today's New York Times. I think that the Democrats simply do not comprehend the fact that there are, A, there are a lot more independents than perhaps the progressives think there are. Uh, B, there are a lot of moderate Republicans uh, like myself, and I'm not really that all that moderate, but I still voted for Biden, who just couldn't stand Trump. And so they essentially, quote unquote, came back home. But C, really important, a lot of people really do resonate negatively to a lot of these culture wars, which um, the Republicans play up, but the progressives give them a lot of material. Um, there's a story in the Times today about California, which now is proposing to change the math curriculum by uh, eliminating programs for gifted kids. Now, if you're going to eliminate programs in math for gifted kids, how well are we really going to do in STEM? Nobody seems to be thinking about the fact that parents really care about this stuff. Youngkin, uh, yes, McAuliffe made a mistake. But Youngkin jumped all over it because he recognized that, you know, people in the suburbs, educated people, by the way, who may not go to Harvard or Yale, but go to pretty good state schools. Um, Remember, not all people who vote Republican are a bunch of yahoos. Uh, And those folks who who do care about their kids' education are going to put that as a very, very high priority. And they worry about all this cultural wokeism, which the Democrats deny even exists, and ordinary voters feel that it does. And I I would say that much more than what happened in Virginia, I think the real story is New Jersey, as Mike says, 
because New Jersey, um, I've got a son that lives up there. Um, I'm up there a lot. It, this is a very, very liberal state. And, uh, you know, when was the last time New Jersey had a bunch of Republican senators, for example? Uh, and, and the fact that it was so close uh, tells me that these cultural issues uh, really bother people. And uh, on top of what you said, Bago, the economy, the inflation, um, the fact that we still haven't gotten on top of COVID, uh, on top of that, the, the cultural issues bother folks. Um, I, uh, I, would, uh, I, I would agree with you uh, on that. Uh, right. I mean, one of the things also progressives say is uh, that there was a lot of dog whistling and that there was a lot of racism and race baiting that was part of this campaign. I mean, unfortunately, that is a factor. It's been a factor in American uh, political history for centuries. I, I don't think that's going to go away. And in fact, I believe the dog whistling, as we've seen, you know, what Trump did is put it out in the open. Uh, that which people may have felt privately. And so we saw an escalation in, in hate crimes uh, and the like, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Patrick, I want to bring you into this conversation um, because I also want to go, go to China, but also have you weigh in on this and what you see could be some national security implications of this. I mean, I think the biggest issue, and I think both, uh, uh, and, and uh, Michael, you, you touched on it as well, China wins when the United States can't govern itself and is so divided that it just can't get out of its own way. And, I, and that's one of the reasons why I think we are a bigger danger to ourselves than China is. China doesn't want to wreck us, but we want to wreck ourselves and are doing a pretty good job of it. But Patrick, I uh, wanted to get your sense on you know, what you see takeaways from this election uh, before we go to the China report and what you thought of it. Well, Bago, as a uh, product of uh, gifted programs in Los Angeles uh, public schools, uh, I would certainly loathe the fact that uh, they're thinking of doing away with those kind of programs because they do make a big difference. Our public education is woefully behind the international competition. And I think really that's what this election and these forthcoming elections are all about, whether our democracy indeed becomes uh, able to pass the kind of legislation that's reasonable, that gets things done, that builds a stronger defense, but makes us more competitive across, uh, across our society and our economy. Um, you know, I think you know, the election outcome was obvious. Uh, the legislation was too slow. It didn't pass <laughs> before the before the election. And you're thinking, what were the Democrats thinking? Why did they think they had till the end of the year or some other period? Um, the spending and taxing threat is just too much. America wants to see all of these numbers um, add up to something less than uh, bankruptcy. And I think, again, the social uh, tendencies here on the Democratic Party is, is uh, a dub pointed, you know, too woke, as I think in the words of James Carville. Um, they just have to temper it. Um, and if they tempered all of these things, we'd, we'd be a lot better off uh, nationally, all of us. Um, in fact, there was a German think tank along with Columbia University that put out a, a very important report on uh, global protests in democracies in recent years and why global pr protests are more and more common. And it all boils down to the fact that democracies globally are not passing effective, reasonable action on major policy issues. So for the United States now on infrastructure, that's an obvious area where there's bipartisan agreement. We have to get that done. Strengthening defense and our competitiveness as China rises should be obvious. And, and if, if you're not reading the DOD China report, you need to sit down and you know spend a few hours and read this report because this report is a graduate textbook essentially in the People's Liberation Army and how that fits into China's overall national goals. 
Um, I, I should, uh, by the way, masterful transition, uh, Patrick, masterful uh, trans, uh, transition. And I uh, also uh, wanted to point out uh, and congratulate uh, uh, Heather Connolly becoming uh, the head of the German Marshall Fund. I think she's going to do a tremendous job. She's a friend of the program and a good friend. Uh, and we wish her nothing but the best uh, as, she, as she makes that transition away from uh, CSIS. Although I believe she, uh, Dove, correct me if I'm wrong, she is going to maintain an affiliation with CSIS as well, if I'm correct. Yeah, I think she'll be able to. Um, I don't know how much time she'll be able to spend there. The, the German Marshall Fund's a time and a half job, but I do think she'll be terrific. She knows Europe as well as anybody I know. Um, she's highly articulate. She writes well, and she's a really nice person. And those are qualities that make a good leader. Uh, absolutely. Um, so, Patrick, let me uh, go to you. What what were the key takeaways from the report? You know, because one of the criticisms of it is it is a pretty dense academic paper, right? It's it's not. Um, I'm uh, and my colleague, I think uh, Chris Cavasan, uh, the Cavas Ships podcast, is going to make this point, right? There there was something about Soviet military power that tended to grab the imagination and to shake you. Uh, you know, more simply written, a lot of photographs. This one is is much much denser. Uh, ultimately. But from your standpoint, as you said, this is a very important report and an important time. The administration is also starting to brief its NDS early findings, the National Defense Strategy early uh, findings. It's talking about the integrated nuclear deterrent. Um, and, and at the same time, the Indo-Pacific strategy is percolating through the works, right, at, at, as well. So, so give us a sense on the takeaways from the report and how it ties into some of the things that we're going to be seeing coming out of the administration soon. Of course, this reflects the fact that DOD has been putting this out for 20 years now at the request of Congress, and uh, it has always been uh, a more dry report than the old Soviet military balance reports, uh, reflecting in part that China is part of our global economy. The Soviet Union wasn't, um, and uh, we, we, we call China a, a competitor, uh, not an enemy. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting, the Chinese foreign ministry, by the way, protested, blasted this report as, as uh, biased, as uh, disregarding facts, hyping nuclear threat theory. In fact, the report's the opposite. It's, it's fact-based, it's amazingly objective, um, and uh, far from hyping the nuclear threat, it's, it's actually just reporting what, what the Chinese are doing. Uh, so if, if the nuclear threat is being hyped, it's unfortunately because of Chinese behavior. And I think that's the big takeaway from this whole report. Chinese behavior in the military and security space is accelerating and it's starting to accumulate into real uh, fundamental changes that we can see in this decade. So it's no longer just about achieving some great power status in the middle of the century or even being mostly uh, modernized military by 2035. This is now this decade. So 2027 is, is put forward now by the Chinese uh, as the as the year in which the PLA is going to be ready for intelligentized warfare, which basically means they're ready for that kind of joint cross-domain operation to seize the Taiwan Strait, perhaps as a fait accompli. Um, and that's what has so many concerned about a Taiwan scenario. But more generally, this report is talking about uh, growing the anti-access area denial capability out to the second island chain in this decade and achieving what, what in the report and what the Chinese strategists are calling effective control. And there's a special section at the end that talks about how PLA strategists think about this concept of um, setting up um, precise control across the total peace to war continuum. That's obviously a great aspiration. Good luck doing that. But that's what they're working on. And it's, it's alarming when you think about if you're a neighbor of China uh, in the first or second island chain, or you're in the U.S., 
Navy or Air Force or Army, or, you know, trying to think about projecting force um, to within even the, the, the second island chain, this gets more and more difficult this decade. Um, and then finally, you get to the issue that I think garnered the most headlines so far, and that's the nuclear um, expansion uh, of China, because they've always had this minimal deterrent uh, approach. And now the report talks about the PRC intending to have at least a thousand nuclear warheads by 2030, um, achieving a, a basically a degree of, of nuclear parity with the United States, um, or at least trying to neutralize any escalation dominance advantage that the United States might think it has uh, with its triad. And China is doing this by building three new ICBM silo fields that have been largely reported in the press in the recent months. Um, they're doing it by introducing MERV capabilities, so there are multiple independently uh, reentry vehicles on a lot of these uh, ICBMs. And on top of that, they're into hypersonics now, the new DF-17 hypersonic glide vehicle that we saw um, operationally uh, sort of fielded last year for the first time um, on top of what we saw this summer with a couple of tests from, from China. Dual capable DF-26 um, intermediate range ballistic missiles that can strike both land and naval targets. Um, and 250 ballistic missile tests alone last year by the PLA rocket force. So on top of the PLA and Navy, which is the largest Navy in the world, uh, and they have 460 uh, ships by 2030, uh, on top of uh, the Strategic Support Force, which is a theater command level organization for centralizing space and counter space and cyber electronic information warfare. Um, it, this is a, a serious set of challenges in this decade. And then, you know, beyond the 2020s, of course, you, you can only imagine. Um, and so all of this is uh, a sobering report. So it may not be the glossy Soviet military power report that some of us remember, but it is extremely significant. And I can see the, the sort of fingerprints of someone like uh, Dr. Michael Chase, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for China and is, um, is a real expert coming out of RAND. Um, and I can see his kind of uh, fingerprints all over this. And there is an important clarification on Mark Milley's phone calls with uh, his Chinese counterpart in the report too, isn't there? It's interesting that the DoD report goes to the lengths of describing the context in which then Secretary of Defense Mark Esper asked the chairman to speak to his Chinese counterparts to dispel rumors that the United States might actually instigate an October surprise conflict in the South China Sea. And I, clearly the report wanted to put that into the official public record and they've done so in this report. I wanna come back to you, Patrick, in a moment to get your sort of sense because the in the G20 and COP26, China loomed large in, in both of those, even uh, if uh, Xi Jinping was not present uh, personally uh, for uh, both of those uh, important uh, meetings. Michael, are folks up on the Hill talking about the China military report, are, are members as alarmed about it as they ought to be? Well, that's a good question. So I haven't heard much talk about the report itself, except for some media reports that talked about several uh, Democratic senators who are pressing Biden now to enter into arms control treaties uh, as far as nuclear weapons are concerned with, with the Chinese. And you know, that's something that's been discussed for a while, and I think it makes sense that we always think in, our, in terms of our control as the Russians. And I think we right. have to now think in terms of the Chinese, you know, as well, I think even, even more so. Um, but the alarm bells have been going off now for a while on the Hill. I think they're just getting louder. Um, uh, but so I think this report didn't get as much attention on the Hill this week because of all the other things that are going on. 
they've kind of taken the oxygen out of the room. But um, I think that, you know, when the dust settles, I think people will pay more attention to it. The committees will look at it. And I think that um, this will hopefully add to the sense of urgency as to why we need to get defense appropriations and NDAA done uh, before the end of the year. Dove, I, I want to go and and get your uh, sense on on this as well as a longtime uh, observer and somebody who is tracking China uh, pretty much as long as anybody I I know with uh, a somewhat of a of a critical eye. Um, what what's your sense? And is the report conveying what it needs to convey? And from what you're hearing um, uh, about. You know, from from what you're hearing about what the NDS is going to say, what the nuclear review is going to say, and what the Indo-Pacific strategy is going to say, what what's your sense on where we're going to end up uh, on this, and whether any of these documents are going to demand the urgency, right? Because there is a lot of debate in the administration now. Well, we should engage at some level on this. We can see John Kerry's fingerprints. Look, we should strike a climate deal with the with the Chinese uh, because it'll be important. It, it's unclear whether it would be important uh, at all. Uh, in fact, I think, uh, you know, some folks have observed that because the Chinese are unlikely to, you know, abide by any agreement. In fact, their track record of abiding by any agreement has been been very bad. But what's your, you know, what, what were the takeaways from your standpoint? Well, first of all, you know, in a sense, Phil Davidson's, uh, the former commander of Indo-Pacific Command, who's sort of farewell testimony on the Hill, that's the one that got everybody's attention when he said the Chinese could attack Taiwan by 2027. So in some respects, the um, report has kind of been overshadowed by that. Um, the, The details themselves, I mean, people who've been watching East Asia for a while, there's, there isn't all that much that's terribly new. I think Patrick's right. It, it's it's much more sober than the Soviet military power reports. Uh, I, I was there in the Pentagon when we first issued them, but they were they had a different objective. They were there to almost as as a kind of propaganda um, because at the time we were trying to get a lot more money to take on the Soviets after the Carter era, and this was another way to do it. I think this report simply is, as Patrick says, is laying out what the Chinese have been doing. I mean, you don't have to hype it because they're doing so much. Um, And when you then sort of look at how some of the neighbors, uh, and again, Patrick uh, knows this far more than I do, but uh, if you look at how Japan has been responding over the last few years, they didn't need this report to respond. And now you have the third consecutive prime minister who's pushing Japan in a direction uh, of of military buildup that would have been unheard of a decade ago. Um, The neighbors are scared. Some are still pursuing this kind of uh, foot in both camps strategy, but uh, Japan clearly uh, is not. Uh, And uh, I think that yes, the report was overshadowed by other events, but I think the Davidson testimony more than anything else, because that was very, very specific. It wasn't a list of stuff the Chinese are doing or how many ships they have, aircraft, missiles, whatever. Uh, it was these guys could attack Taiwan and we won't be in a position to do very much. That gets people's attention. One thing about arms control. Um, look, the Trump administration did try to bring the Chinese to the table. The Chinese don't want to come to the table. They like ambiguity. Uh, They like the idea of building up and letting the Americans and the Russians 
work out their limits and they'll keep building up toward those limits. Most, uh, I think the current estimate is they'll be uh, at half the number of warheads that uh, we and the Russians will have by uh, the mid thirties, if not sooner. Um, uh, again, Patrick can correct me on the specifics, but that's my understanding. So from the Chinese perspective, why get involved in arms control at all? Uh, exactly. Uh, let me, uh, our, our time is uh, running short. We've got less than five minutes left and I want to get all three of your, uh, takes on this. Um, both the G20 and COP26, China loomed large in it. We have a transatlantic steel and aluminum, uh, tariff agreement, uh, which is very positive. And in announcing that agreement, President Biden made clear that dirty, uh, Chinese steel and aluminum, right? Tariffs would remain on that, that it's being tied to, uh, 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 environmental policy uh, at, a, at a level. Um, Patrick, how did China factor in this? And from your standpoint, were COP26 and the G20 successful uh, uh, meetings and, and how China factored in them? And uh, Dove, I should point out, you have a climate piece that came out in the Hill uh, today, and I would love your uh, take on it, title of which Biden's deepening climate emergency doesn't require a defense uh, response, which I think I disagree with you on. But go ahead, uh, Patrick, start us off. Well, Vago, there's nothing simple about climate change and large multilateral gatherings are never likely going to lead to some uh, earth shattering agreement uh, of unanimity. Um, but there are definitely some things that stand out here of COP26 and in, in the Glasgow meeting. Uh, one of them is, of course, that China uh, was absent. Um, and uh, it's very important, I think, for the United States to have its um, sort of president um, at least talking about these issues in a way that is constructive and um, he's present at, you know, at the meetings. And that's been a very important thing for the United States alone, uh, even though uh, the progress on all of these issues, whether for the United States or globally, um, we have a long, long way to go. China, you know, is responsible for more than half of all coal being used uh, in the world today. Um, so, you know, unless you can start to get a handle on big problems like that, um, and that's gonna take years, uh, we're not going to be cutting those green gas, uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, sufficiently to slow the rate of global warming. So this is very important uh, for us to be working on. I think another takeaway is simply that um, the world has a long way to go and that younger generation, if you're in high school or you're in college, you know, this is the rest of your adult life. You're looking at uh, a real um, challenge in terms of trying to shift into a, a, a post-fossil fuel uh, economy. Uh, it's not going to happen in this decade alone or next even. It's going to happen over the next five or six or seven decades. And that's, that's going to consume their, uh, much of their, their livelihood and, and I think their, uh, their health and their, their future. Uh, I uh, would uh, agree with you on that. And uh, right, I mean, when I mentioned at the top, the contradictions, the United States is, it, you know, did, did not want to ban uh, coal, but is going to work on methane. Uh, we won't uh, seek, uh, uh, um, we, we won't uh, fund uh, oil and, uh, and fossil fuel energy exploration and, and the like. But I think that it's very positive for the international community to, be, to do something on deforestation, which is important, obviously. Yeah. To, and Vago, you know, on the deforestation, yeah, just a, just a footnote on the deforestation, because sure. when I was working in the George W. Bush administration, I was in Indonesia trying to provide critical funding so that the Indonesians would stop 
destroying uh, this global treasure of their uh, sort of old growth forest. Uh, even now, their interior minister says, oh, we can't stop you know, building roads. We can't stop doing those things. I understand it from their point of view of economic development, but the world needs it. So we're going to have to do a better job of convincing countries, uh, friendly countries like Indonesia, that the world needs their contribution and what can we do to offset it uh, in other ways. And, and so that just shows that it, as with methane or as with coal in any one country or one state, you think about West Virginia, there are going to be exceptions. But overall, we hope we're moving in the right direction. And that's that's the more important goal here. And the takeaway is, Overall, we need more progress. Uh, but uh, alas, uh, some of that, you know, some of the most important elements of climate, obviously, were stripped out of uh, the American uh, bill, whether Biden's bill or on infrastructure, in part because of Joe Manchin's coal interests and his representation of a coal state. Uh, Dove, I want to get your sense on it, and we can end uh, with uh, Michael uh, and where members are on this. But uh, Dove, you've you've made the case. Uh, you, you've written what you've written. I'm one of the people who 15 years ago made a case that the DOD doesn't need a climate chief in part because of the climatological impact on uh, military infrastructure, whether it's Norfolk or permafrost melting impact on bases, uh, but also it's going to change the operational tempo of the US military over time. Uh, there are gonna be more water, more famine driven crises that we're gonna get involved in. So ultimately why not have somebody who you know focuses more uh, on that kind of stuff, right? I mean, the sooner we do the planning for it, the sooner we do the mitigation through international organizations, the better off we're going to be so that we're not at that kinetic end of, of things. Uh, give us your sense of what you thought were interesting about uh, the G20 uh, and okay. COP and what was well, wrong and what was not. Yeah, and then I'll deal with uh, what you just said. Um, the biggest problem to me with the G G20 uh, with, was not only that Xi Jinping didn't show up, but nobody wagged a finger at the Chinese for building all those new coal-fired plants which I understand is going to add more than 1% of their annual emissions. Um, so people are still treating Beijing very gingerly, even though they're, they're a huge polluter and, and looks like they're going in the wrong direction, not in the right direction. Um, as for what you just said, um, the, I, I did write a piece. It wasn't really uh, the headline of the piece didn't really reflect what I wrote entirely because I don't have a problem with uh, Colin Kyle, the Undersecretary for Policy, having a, a climate czar. My problem is that the, the fundamental threat is not to the DOD and is not, it, it's, it's it really undifferentiated. I mean, the climate issues like pandemic issues, um, they don't target anyone in particular. And, uh, and the fact, you know, Patrick just mentioned talking to Indonesia. Well, if I recall correctly, Patrick was with AID. And I think if you want to add resources beyond those that are strictly speaking for DOD, remember this year they're asking for $617 million, and that's going to go to try to prevent things like disasters at Tyndall because of a hurricane or off it because of flooding. Um, that's, that's perfectly fine. But one of the things Carl did say is that he's going to have his climates are arguing for more resources. And that's where I have a problem because it seems to me that uh, agencies like AID, even agriculture, um, several other agencies, they're the ones that should be getting more resources. And in fact, Biden's build back better to the extent that passes is gonna put a lot of money into dealing with climate related issues. So my bottom line in that article and, and, and my strong feeling is that if you want DOD to spend more than just what it needs to protect its own bases 
uh, and and protect its infrastructure is not is not to say we won't don't do it, but rather give them additional funds to do that so that the funding doesn't come at the expense of operations and maintenance and acquisition and particularly acquisition. And, and in fact, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs pointed out that the money we've been spending to deal with uh, disaster relief inside American inst uh, installations has come out of operations and maintenance, meaning training has been sacrificed, exercises have been sacrificed, and so on. So it's not so much that we shouldn't do it, but if you feel that 617 million or roughly in that, uh, at that level is insufficient, add to the defense budget, because at the very same time, we've been talking about this Chinese uh, growth uh, across the board militarily and, and also on the civilian side that supports the military. Well, if you wanna stay ahead of those folks, you shouldn't just simply divert money from other uh, activities in order to fund climate. And that is what worries me. And if you look at the, the prominence that's been given to climate in defense uh, materials that are being put out by the Pentagon, it almost overshadows other things. Um, and and you, you don't want to write um, hypersonics are very important, climate's uh, important, uh, right? I completely understand the case of not uh, conflating this. And I should point out to our audience, obviously, uh, Wang Yi uh, and uh, senior Russian representatives also were at both of these, uh, well, excuse me, uh, Russia representatives were at these uh, events, even if uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin uh, were not. Uh, Michael, well, look, Vago, I... Vago, look, when the president of the United States and all the West's leaders show up and she doesn't show up, Wangi, it is just not the same thing. My foreign I, I, minister is important. It, it's but embarrassing. The head of state. I, absolutely. But he hasn't left the country in 21 months. So whether that's COVID or anything else uh, is another issue. We have to wrap this up. Uh, Michael, uh, you, you get the last word. Um, how, how is all of this uh, playing out uh, up on the Hill? And are folks really, because all of us are now being impacted uh, by this, uh, no matter how you call it. If you have a house on the Eastern shore, you're getting flooded out a lot more often or having climate related issues or storm related issues, rain related issues. Uh, this is happening to relatives of mine on Long Island and friends elsewhere around the world. From, from, from your standpoint, how did the week play out? And, and what's the sense from members of Congress about whether or not the United States is gonna do anything about it? Because energy remain, remains an extremely powerful lobby there's increasing evidence, for example, that gas-powered stoves are very unhealthy, and yet banning gas-powered stoves is an issue in California, right? Everybody's up in arms, like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my gas stove and the delicacy with which I can control it. Whereas, you know, a lot of professional and expert chefs would tell you you, you can cook as easily with an electric stove, uh, and as well with an electric stove as, as you can with a, uh, a gas-powered one. Go ahead. Well, I think, unfortunately, this remains a, a partisan issue. I mean, one of the reasons the defense bill can't pass the, ha the House uh, on appropriations, is not just because of the number, but it's because of the environmental provisions that were put into the defense appropriations bill that the Republicans are objecting to. And I think, you know, I think they're going to get there, but it's going to take a lot of time. And I think it's going to require, you know, I think a lot of the defense companies that are impacted by this, especially the shipyards and you know, uniform military explaining the impact on uh, installations and uh, our, you know, our readiness. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, the Republicans are in a position, and I, and I can't speak for all of them. Obviously, there are some that I think are supportive of uh, making these changes and, and recognize this problem. But, you know, when it comes to China, as people pointed out earlier, that if they're not going to play along, why should we? 
you know, why should we put ourselves at disadvantage? And it was one of the arguments that the, you know, the former president used for getting us out of the Paris Climate Accords. It was, you know, unfair. We were taking on more of an undue burden, whether it was true or not. Uh, I think we still have have a long way to go. And and you know, I mean, this Congress reacts uh, to a crisis, and I just don't think that the sense of crisis is high enough for them yet. Um, very briefly, uh, uh, Dove, um, anything uh, in less than 30 seconds to say about our Iranian uh, friends or anything that's going on in the Middle East or elsewhere around the world that you want to weigh in on? It, it, I'm hearing uh, two things. First, that uh, it looks like they are talking to us, um, not uh, in a very, very public way, but there, there are discussions going on. Uh, and the flip side of that is the Israelis, again, are nervous and uh, they just passed the budget for the first time in three and a half years. And they're putting more money in to uh, exercises to go and attack Iran. So um, stay tuned. This is far from over. Guys, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much. Hope you all have a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.